Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this special Earth Month episode, I talked with Colorado Senator Chris Hansen, a state and national leader on climate change. We talked about how concern for our planet's future has driven his career choices, about the significant work being done in Colorado to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and transition to a clean energy economy and how states across the country have been leading the way on climate action. We also talked about what it's like to co-author the annual state budget, which just passed the legislature, about the investment it makes in education, housing, infrastructure, and more, about why Colorado is moving into the blue column and whether it can stay there, and about the one thing you shouldn't miss doing on a summer visit to Denver. Enjoy. Senator Chris Hansen, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Great to be with you, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to talk to you. You've got so much going on there in Colorado. Love to start maybe with something that just happened in the last few days, I believe, which was getting your budget through the legislature and over to the governor. I think you were serving as the ranking senator on the Joint Budget Committee, so a real and author of this budget. What was the process like this year? And tell us a little bit about what's in the budget. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'd love to dive into that with you. We, you know, we had kind of an unusual year, as I think most states did, just because of the one-time federal and one-time state money that we typically don't have. We really added that into the budget conversation and making sure that we got it put to the highest and best use, but also didn't overextend ourselves so that the out years, you could have some kind of cliff effect because it's one-time money. And so really complex situation for Colorado, probably like most states, Colorado is a little bit unique in that we have a joint budget committee, which is three senators, three representatives that write the budget. So it's kind of the six of us that then bring it back to the full body. We've just gone through that process with both the House and Senate and now have it on the governor's desk. And and so, yeah, I was, was pleased to, to serve as vice chair this year, kind of leading the Senate side and working closely with with my my colleagues to, to get that ready. And you know, I, I suppose some of the big highlights would be that Typical year, Colorado would have three to four hundred million in discretionary spending, a new spending that we could allocate. And this year, it was about four billion. So it was about ten times what we would normally have for for discretionary spending decisions. So it's a great problem to have. Obviously, you'd love to have the resource to do do more and get more great work done and and shore up services, particularly coming out of the the pandemic. But it also meant a very complex and complicated budget process this year. And tell me a little bit more about that. That It is so exciting. I mean, this one-time funding that is coming to states and localities through a variety of means, right? The American Rescue Plan, Infrastructure Bill, and, and others. But it is, like you said, a lot of that is one-time funding and probably from the state as well. How, how do you think about 
how best to spend that money specifically where it's not going to be recurring, where you can, you know, you can set yourself up for, for transformational change or to, to get kind of the outcomes you want. How do you think about that? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I know that's a puzzle that every budget committee around the country was dealing with, you know, in Colorado, I think we really tried to approach it from how could we get the most leverage out of one-time funds in the category that we were trying to advance. And so, you know, taking take an example, like affordable housing or accessible housing, we were really trying to look for ways to get the uh, most leverage without creating an ongoing commitment. And so we looked at a revolving loan fund as one of the one of the outcomes. We are also doing uh, you know, tax credits that are kind of one time, but that get about a 20x match from the private sector. So those are a couple of examples. When you think about drug treatment or providing services to people experiencing homelessness, we really tried to use the one-time funds to solve some of the capital or infrastructure problems but then made sure that we had ongoing money for the operation side after the capital was put in place. So we've got a couple hundred million dollars set aside for more capacity and, and uh, helping those populations and, and addressing homelessness in, in Denver in particular. So those are, I think, some examples of how you, you try to get uh, solve a, a one-time problem like infrastructure, a building, a facility, or you use it as, as a, a tax credit so that you get instant leverage with with private capital, but you haven't created a big ongoing commitment from an operation standpoint. So that was sort of the puzzle we were trying to solve in area after area. Yeah, and I know that I know that another big uh, headline out of the budget was really a, a lot of increased spending around education, something that you've been passionate about for a long time. What's in the budget for education? Yeah, it was it was a really historic year for Colorado. We have. We're sort of the, the one state in the union right now that has a, a, a TABOR or Taxpayer Bill of Rights, as it's referred to on the, the right side of the spectrum, which creates huge inequities in our budget. And we have, for about 10 years, been significantly behind on where we needed to be for K-12 funding. We referred to it as the negative factor. It's sort of how much were we short of where we were in 2007, which is right before the, the, the last recession. And we've been chipping away at that year after year. And this year, we were able to buy down about half of that negative factor and take it from about $550 million down to $250 million, as well as do some big new investments in special ed funding, higher ed, pre-K, all receiving you know, significant new money. And so I would say kind of our situation now is, is much improved from that deficit that we've been carrying for many years. And I think interestingly, we've got universal kindergarten now. We've got a huge increase in pre-K slots being invested in K-12 funding now. That that negative factor shrunk to about 250 million, and then big new investment in higher ed, where we're actually going to see after inflation adjustment the tuition prices going down in Colorado. Which I searched through the records. I think it's the first time that's happened you know, in at least the last 30 years. So some great steps forward on on education in this budget. That's so great! Congratulations on that. And I don't want—I don't want to belabor this, but I, I do have to just say that the Tabor rules. When I first learned about those so many years ago, working in state and local space, as you said, that kind of the only state in the, in the country that does that. Can you just explain to people what that is? It's re- it really does hamstring uh, you a lot as legislators. It does it not? It, yeah, absolutely. And and I think part of the problem with Tabor is you know it's sold to the voters when it was pitched back in the early '90s. Is like, hey, here's a way that you can get a chance to vote on any tax changes or increases. And that sounds pretty good to a voter. The problem is a lot of folks didn't read the fine print. And there was about 10 other things that that ballot initiative did in 1992, 93. And it also meant that the state government could only retain revenue 
increases year after year that are in line with inflation, CPI, and changes in population. So Colorado, you know, in a given year might have 1% increase in population and inflation might change by 3%. And so our total amount of revenue we can retain then therefore goes up 4%. And that sort of sounds good on the surface. The problem is it means that any real growth above inflation in the economy, the state government doesn't get to share in any of that, even though, of course, demands on, on services go up in line with real growth in the economy. And the other problem it has is there's a big disconnect between consumer price inflation, CPI, and the basket of goods that the state government has to buy. Because, of course, the state government's employing nurses and buying bridges and concrete and labor that don't match up with what's in the consumer price index. And so imagine that disconnect. It's about a point and a half on average per year. And then you compound that for 30, 35 years. You can imagine what happens. And the, the result is, is pretty predictable. We are tens of billions of dollars behind in funding education, infrastructure, capital maintenance, et cetera. So it's it's left us in a really terrible spot. Yeah. So and it's great that you were able to make a little bit of a dent that this year with some of that one-time funding, but it sounds like structural reform probably needed in the long haul for sure. Yeah. 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 I want to um kind of shift to a different topic, a policy topic. You know, before running for office, you were you worked in the global energy industry. You're an expert on energy economics and data analytics. And I know that you know you really are a leader in the state and, and frankly, nationally on, on climate change. I was reading, actually, when you were appointed to the Senate, the attorney general, when they were nominating you, said that, that you, what was needed was someone with a deep passion and perspective who's committed to the number one issue of our time addressing climate change. So tell me a little bit about the, some of the ways you've been working in Colorado to reduce your state's greenhouse gas emissions and deal with climate change there in your state. Yeah, thanks, Debbie. I mean, this this was really the issue that motivated me to, to you know leave my job and run for office, which is now Gosh, seven years ago when I when I did that and started running uh, for the state house in the 2016 cycle, and I come out of an energy economics background and and did a lot of energy policy work, environmental policy work, both in the U.S. and, and overseas. And I really just have done my best to try to bring some of that background to the debate here at the Capitol. And I think Colorado is sort of in that handful of states that has pressed forward really assertively and trying to look at every option we can to, to reduce emissions and improve the environment. And over the last couple of years, I've done a lot in the electricity sector. We're going to be on our really clear path to, to zero carbon electricity system in the next 15 years. A lot of that is closing down old coal plants and replacing them with lower price wind and solar and, and storage facilities. It also means upgrading the grid. That was a big push I did last year on trying to integrate Colorado better inside the regional grid in the West. And this year, a really kind of turned to some of those gaps that we had in policy. We hadn't really done anything on the ag sector, which is a huge opportunity, I think, for, for ag producers and for environmental quality. So we'll be, be adding that to kind of the arrows in our quiver this year. Really interested in, in heat pump conversions, so electrifying everything we can, including our heating and cooling systems, our lawnmowers, our, our lawn equipment. You know, we really just need to electrify everything that we can as fast as we can. And then I think the other thing I would highlight is an area that's often overlooked is green building materials. And this has been a really interesting one for Colorado because we've switched to you know recycled steel, green concrete, low emission composite wood products. There's a long list of ways you could do this. And it's about 10% of total emissions. And fortunately, most of these products are actually made in the region. So it's also a great 
great on the job growth and, and economic side. So that's something that we've done some, I think, some good work on in Colorado. Yeah, you really have been leaders in, in in a lot of this space, and kudos to you. It's it's I think it's important for people to realize how much can be done at the state and local level. Of course, it feels so daunting, and we need federal action, we need global action. But there really are these policies that states and localities can pursue. And I and I also wanted to just mention too that I know, I know that you talk about it this way too. I think that people, you know, it's important that we talk about it not only as an environmental issue, which you're which you talking about as as well as as you were talking about the the economics issue of this, right? Switching to a clean energy economy. Why is it important that we think about climate, not just from an environmental standpoint, but from an economic standpoint? That is super, super important because certainly there are people that are really motivated by just that focus on greenhouse gas emissions. And we obviously need to do that for the the planet becomes uninhabitable. But I, I think there's also a hugely positive story around the economic growth side and job creation and building you know, wealth and, and, and building great businesses in your state. And Colorado, I think, has been able to prove that. We've, we've moved rapidly into wind and solar and now battery storage. And we've got a ton of local companies that are making great profits in that space. And it's created tens of thousands of jobs. In fact, green energy jobs now have eclipsed the more traditional sectors and oil and gas and coal. And it, it's become a huge plus for the Colorado economy. For foreign firms like Vestas, uh, domestic firms like GE, building wind turbines, supplying wind turbines, tons of great solar outfits now in Colorado. So there's a there's a great green energy economy story here that I think Colorado has been able to really deliver on. Yeah, that's thanks for thanks for that. I feel like it would be I would be remiss not to ask you since I have you and and given your background, you know, we're sitting here. It's it's Earth month, Earth Day almost, which is, so I'm glad we're talking about this. We're also sitting here with record gas prices and given your your expertise on, on kind of energy economy, I think that people, uh, energy economics, I think people don't really understand kind of what's happening. I wonder if you could give us just the the 30,000 foot view of, of kind of why are gas prices so high and what should people know about that? Yeah, that's uh, obviously a complex subject. It's, you know, I, I think both sides of the political spectrum like to kind of oversimplify that that question and to try to score political points. And, you know, we've heard the rhetoric on the right. We've heard some of the rhetoric from the left. The, the truth is, is, is probably a bit more complex. I guess what I would say to, to the listeners of the podcast is that I think it's really a combination of two main factors. One is kind of normal commodity cycle, meaning low prices led to very low investment in new production in 18 and 19. And then as the economy sort of came roaring back, there wasn't enough new production in process to meet that demand and prices spiked. So that's that's a big part of the story. And, and for the oil and gas companies, especially some of the smaller ones, they couldn't get access to capital because they had spent several years producing negative returns. So of course, capital is going to flow to where they get the best return and uh, didn't flow to oil and gas because it had very poor returns for, for many years. And I think the second factor, which is the obvious one, is the war in Ukraine. And so when you, you know, take a lot of Russian oil out of the system, when you have disruptions like that, it sort of is the insult to injury or at compounding effect on the, the normal supply issues, the normal sort of commodity cycle that we're, we're in. And so oil prices then spiked even further, you know, to above $100, and they've kind of settled back in as, as things have adjusted. But now we're going to see, you know, elevated oil prices for, for several months, could be a year, and then there'll be a, a, another downturn. 
particularly as folks are switching to electric cars, which is now going to accelerate because of high prices. So there's all these factors kind of back and forth and it's always a bit more complicated than than you get on the front page of the paper. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. I you know, when I thought we were going to do this interview. I was like, I got to ask him that question because <laughs> you you're somebody who actually will know the answer. And I thanks for explaining that so helpfully. I want to talk politics in a minute, but I, I do want to ask you about one other policy issue first because you were one of the winners for the New Deal's 2021 Biannual Ideas Challenge. We do where we collect ideas from leaders across the country, and then panel of judges gives awards in partnership with Governing Magazine. And and you won for an idea, uh, secure tokens for state financial offerings. And I think this goes back to a little bit of what you were talking about earlier about some of the challenges you have in Colorado, particularly raising some money for capital projects. So just I'd love for you just maybe to tell us what problem you know existed and, and, and what this is trying to solve. Thank you. And I was such so thrilled to, to hear about the feedback on that policy idea and, and grateful for to New Deal for that. And you know, I, I've been really thinking hard about what are our options in Colorado around how to solve kind of the capital financing issue with Tabor restrictions and other things we have in in the state. And, you know, we've been using bonds like everybody else, but they typically take, you know, specific legislation or voter approval. We've also got an instrument called certificates of participation, which we essentially take state assets, buildings normally, and then turn those into a, a, a portfolio of assets that you can use as collateral. And then we borrow against those assets. But one of the things we hadn't tried is really this idea of using secure tokens to democratize our ability to raise capital. And so our offerings on the bond side were always to institutional investors. There was lots of overhead and fees that go with it. And so I thought, well, what, what can we do to open this up to more people so you get more participation and therefore lower interest rates, but also to try to reduce the amount of overhead when you have a debt offering? Because why pay fees to you know, Wall Street bankers and rating agencies if, if you don't have to. And so I think this idea was really focused to trying to solve those two problems, use secure token technology. A lot of people confuse that like, oh, is this about cryptocurrency? It's not. <laughs> you might be able to use cryptocurrency to, to buy an asset, but this is really focused on blockchain technology and secure token technology that would allow you to put a debt offering into the market and everyone would know what you're buying and selling and be secure and would really just be a modern version of kind of a vanilla bond offering. So it, we're, we're excited to see if see if that takes off. Yeah. And you, to be clear, this is um, an idea in the idea phase right now still, right? This has not been passed by the legislature. Well, yeah, I passed it out of the Senate. It's sitting in the House right now. Uh, and fully expect it to get to the governor's desk. So we're getting close. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Can we switch gears for a second? I, I'd love to talk about, you know, we're obviously in an election year and lots of uh, thoughts are on politics. And I find Colorado to be such an interesting state. I think that, you know, for so long, it was considered a swing state, but in recent years, really swung more blue. You've got the governor, both U.S. senators, both houses of, con- of the legislature, all your statewide officers are Democrats. Of course, you also have people like Warren Boebert from your state. So I I'm just kind of curious how how you would think of someone being there, kind of how you describe the politics of your state and if it has shifted, you know, why is that? And and, and importantly, kind of what do you think Democrats need to do to continue to, to be successful in Colorado? It's a great question. And, and obviously, we're all, I, I suppose, as Democrats thinking about the headwinds that are in our face as we go into the 22 cycle, which is a very normal part of, you know, having your guy in the White House or your gal in the White House that you know, the, the midterms are always, always tough in that sense. 
And I, and I don't think 22 will be any different. I guess what I would say in Colorado is that I've seen the Republican Party here move further to the right. And Lauren Boebert is one piece of evidence. But if you look at their candidates for statewide office right now, we've got a guy in the state house who was on the Capitol steps on January 6th. I mean, he's full election denier. He is now the top line of the Republicans for the nomination for U.S. Senate to run against Michael Bennett. You've seen election deniers, uh, you know, collaborators with Mike Lindell and the MyPillow guy running for secretary of state. You're seeing this all over the country. Arizona is another example. Lots of states having this where election deniers, you know, full Trumpers running for secretary of state, I guess, to try to, you know, undermine our election system, because that seems to be what they care about. And this is a really scary outcome. You know, in some ways, as a Democrat in Colorado, it's sort of maybe it's a good thing, right? If you have a super extreme nominee on the right, it probably makes the Democrats job of holding these seats easier. I think that's how it's going to play out in Colorado. I think Michael Bennett will be in a very solid position if, if uh, you know, Ron Hanks, the gentleman I was referring to, gets the nomination. So, you know, there could be a, a silver lining there. But, but I think there's strong evidence that the Republican Party in Colorado has actually gotten more extreme and more to the right. And, you know, so I think for Democrats to be successful, we got to uh, communicate to to moderates, independents, and Democrats. That's been our, our recipe for success in Colorado for many years. And I think the 22 cycle will be no different. Yeah, it is so scary that this does seem to be a strategy around the country. You know, and there's a lot of examples of just of these folks, the election deniers, as you say, running for secretaries of states, running for local, even local clerks. And, you know, it's something that New Deal is going to spend a lot of time focused on in the coming months. And thanks for the reminder about Colorado having some very explicit examples of that. It's 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 really concerning that uh, that we're going to, you know, that there's a chance that we would put, you know, the hands of our democratic institutions and people who don't really believe in the, in democracy. Well, yeah, that's, that's spot on. And it's just, yeah, somebody who, you know, was at the January 6th on the Capitol steps and pushing against the, the police lines and, you know, did or did not go inside. You know, I, I don't know in this particular case, if, if representative Hanks did or didn't breach the Capitol, but to me that disqualifies you from running for office. And it just really hurts my heart to see, you know, that, that element in Colorado you know, getting some traction. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, that brings me to a question I we love to talk about on on this podcast, which is you know, we are it is an honorable profession, and we, you know, love to hear the stories about how people got into this because at the end of the day, this is an honorable profession, and it's so important for all of you who step up and run for public office, particularly in light of what we're talking about right now. People, you know, it's 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 a sacrifice. It's hard to to be an elected official, particularly in this day and age when you know the cultural the climate is just so fraught with division and, and nastiness, frankly. But but tell me about, you know, you were, we, we kind of alluded to it earlier, but you were humming along in a career that was nowhere near politics, it sounds like to me, in terms of uh, uh, working on global energy issues. What did kind of prompt you to think about running for office yourself? I, I really love this question. And I love the title of this podcast for the same reasons you just talked about. I think we it is so important to remind people about the the importance of this work and that the vast majority of politicians are there because they want to improve their community and, and bring, you know, something valuable to the debate. And, and that's certainly how I felt in the summer of 2015, when I left my job and started campaigning and knocking doors and just talking to my neighbors and, and hearing what was on their minds and, and asking for their support to represent them at the Capitol. And that's, you know, that's what this is about. And that's what makes our democracy strong and great. And, you know, I, I guess for me, I really came to the conclusion that 
you know, my motivating issue was around climate change that we talked about earlier. And if I was serious about trying to pitch in and do my part, that I I really needed to to think about where I could be most effective. And and the more I I thought about it, I, you know, the state government level provided a great way to to get involved and work on this issue. Uh, obviously, we know the the kind of stuck nature of the debate in in D.C. right now. But states have charged ahead. And in fact, most of the country lives in a state that has serious clean energy goals. And so that state leadership, you know, seems super important to me in, in 2015, still super important today, maybe even more so. And so that that really motivated me to to make the change. And, and I suppose there's a come to a point where there's sort of you got to put your money where your mouth is. And uh, in this case, you know, took a big pay cut and when it went in that direction, but, you know, don't regret it for a moment. And and just, you know, so happy to be a part of this work. Yeah. And thank you for doing it. And, you know, a lot of the answers you've already given, including the last one, kind of allude to to probably the, the next answer. But, you know, has it surprised you being an elected official, good or bad? Is it, you know, do you feel like you've been able to make the kind of changes you were hoping that you could make? I think that people are just so cynical about politics and what can come out of government. But, to, you know, to, to the point you were just making about state leadership, I mean, you know, in my experience doing this for 30 years, you know, you really can make a difference in public office. So what, what's your your experience been like? Yeah, my experience is, has been been really. I, I guess I'm I'm realistic. I'm not naive to the you know the pressures or the kind of nastiness that can sometimes come with being in in the public eye and public service and being in a legislature and elected office in any form. But you know, I I think I just try to stay really positive. Look for ways to to progress an issue, move an idea, talk to lots of people, and and build support. And you know, I I typically do. 40, 50 bills a year. I'm so thankful we're in the majority because you can get, get a lot more done <laughs> in, in this case. You know, my first two years in the House, we had split chambers. The Republicans were in charge of the Senate and, and we found ways to still make progress. Energy storage, for example, was able to get some legislation done even with split chambers. So, you know, you just look at the situation, try to put the puzzle together, put your best ideas forward, talk to lots of smart people and 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 put it together. And, you know, I, I just really love that aspect about this work and just really grateful that I get a chance to do it for my community. Yeah. I'll ask you one more question about your background. It just occurred to me when you were um, growing up, I mean, so you, you, it did end up in the climate space. So now we've talked about how that led you to public office, but what was it that led you into the kind of energy career that you started before you even thought you would run for office? Was it, was, was climate part of that or was it a, a different path? You know, it, it was, you know, for me, I'd, I kind of think about my first excitement around politics and policy was probably a high school debate. And I can remember doing an energy policy topic when I was in high school. And then I went to college and, and studied engineering and did a lot of work on different types of power sources and, and the, the grid and, and energy economics is, is part of that. And then stayed with that all the way through grad school and, and did a PhD and that focused on energy economics and particularly you know, energy policy and in developing countries and India was was the focus of my dissertation. And so that had been a long part of kind of what I was interested in academically and policy wise and had stayed involved in politics all through undergrad, through grad school, through my private sector career. And I, you know, I think it just had always been on my mind of like, okay, how can I, how can I pitch in? How can I be part of the solution? You know, I see climate change as sort of the the largest shared policy problem the world has right now. You know, lots of other things, pandemics and and poverty and hunger. But if we don't figure out climate, 
the rest of it, the rest of it's not going to matter. And so, you know, this, this was just really top of mind and top of my heart for, for many years. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing on that issue, but on so much more. And as I as I close here, we've been asking a question I think has been a lot of fun to folks to tell us a little bit about where you're from. If I had 24 hours in Denver, what do I need to see? Are there any hidden gems you might point me to? Oh, well, it's it's certainly not a hidden gem because it's been named the number one outdoor music venue for like, you know, 20 years in a row. But if you get to Denver on a summer night, a concert at Red Rocks is the way to go. Yeah, that's I, in fact, I've got tickets for a few weeks after the session's over to go see, see a great show. And I can't wait. It's, it's a sublime experience. Oh, okay. All right. I'm putting that on my summer to-do list for sure. That sounds amazing. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for being our guest today. And again, for all the work you're doing, just uh, really grateful for for you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Debbie. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.